Hello, everybody. It's Lisa Salberg, and I'm back with you on Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA. And I have a special guest with me today. It is October 29th, 2021. It's about 1.45 on the East Coast right now. And I have been joined by um, a friend and colleague, Gwen Mays. Gwen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lisa. I'm glad to be here. So everybody kind of knows my story because I do this podcast all the time, but I wanted to let you introduce yourself and tell everybody a little bit about what brings you here today, and then we'll dive into topic. Sure. Uh, So it's great to be here, Lisa, and be part of the HCMA offerings. Uh, So I have lived with HCM my entire life, symptoms at birth, diagnosed in my 20s. So quite a journey it has been. Um, I feel that today I'm in relatively good health. I managed a couple of centers of excellence. But early on, uh, when I was diagnosed, I'm now 65, so we're going to say 40 years ago, uh, the cardiologist said to me, you may have more difficult challenges emotionally or psychologically than you ever do psychologically. I mean, physically, excuse me. Um, and there are many, many times I think he was right. Um, and so I'm very committed to making sure that HCMA patients are aware and acknowledge of the challenges that they have mentally and emotionally. And so that's what I think has brought us today, here today. Absolutely. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your professional life and what you've done with your world so far? Sure. Happy to. Well, uh, by complete accident, uh, which people find somewhat surprising, I started out um, with aspirations to become a physician and made a slight detour to Emory University. I was a pre-med major and made a slight detour to Emory University where I got my master's in medical science. Um, So at the time, my specialty was in cardiothoracic care, and it was really during graduate school that I began to have symptoms prior to being diagnosed but symptoms that um, indicated to me that I had um, something wrong with my heart. Um, Prior to that, I'd been fairly active, but I'd passed out giving blood or fraternity or sorority events, et cetera, when I over-exercised. So it was really by accident that I started a medical career um, and I did um, have a very successful career in cardiac care. I worked for the artificial heart company, worked for Bayer Pharmaceuticals, worked for the federal government for 10 years in health and human services. I helped Emory start a heart transplant program. So I had a very successful, very involved uh, career, both in healthcare from bedside literally to when I came to Washington, D.C. in 1988. Went on to law school and specialized in health regulations, health policy, uh, and now have my own consulting business. And of course, uh, I'm going to give Lisa the honors of sharing how we personally know each other, but in the more recent years have worked uh, in a consulting arrangement with HCMA uh, and a lot of their important programs, as well as other patient groups and biopharma companies. So you're no stranger to telling your story or hearing patients tell their stories about HCM and even helping them craft their stories so that they can find the right words to express themselves. So how did Gwen and I meet? It doesn't make any sense. Um, we were both, we didn't know it, going to the same meeting at Mayo Clinic um, for, it was Women Heart event. Um, I was there to observe, you were there to participate. 
And uh, we were on a shuttle bus, a little red shuttle bus. And the thing that sticks in my mind is there was a woman with a seeing eye dog and we had a German shepherd sitting underneath our seat <laughs> for the drive from Minneapolis to Rochester, which was about 90 minutes. And we sat next to each other, struck up a conversation. And when we got to our destination, we both checked in at the same event and looked at each other and went, oh, I know you. And then we both found out that we both had HCM. So statistically speaking, that bus had a lot of HCM in it because there was only like 10 people and two of us had HCM. And um, that started things about 15 years ago or so, I would guess, maybe even more now. Right. I think it was 2005 was the year I went. So I do remember that bus ride. I do remember the dog under a seat. And I had just sort of come out of the closet then. Um, that was when Women Heart did a lot of training for women with heart disease, not just HCM. But I remember uh, thinking at the time, and even prior to that, how little was known about the condition. I don't think I knew another person. So to sit down on the bus with somebody that knew what I was talking about from a different part of the country, I was living in uh, Kentucky actually at the time, my native state, I had returned there for a couple of years when my mother was ill. And I do remember meeting and being very, very impressed with the work you were doing and the efforts you had begun. Well, those are early days and we've come a long way, baby. And uh, yeah. you helped us along the way there. So I, I appreciate that. So today, what we've decided to talk about as we've kept this topic for the month of emotional wellness, um, you know, I thought it would be a good idea to talk to you. You also volunteer for the HCMA as a discussion group leader. And you do focus on wellness. Um, so I thought we would have a conversation, um, a little bit of girl talk, but we'll include the guys in on this one, on what it's emotionally like to have HCM and some of the things that we encounter as patients, as, as family members, et cetera. And we we're going to start off with talking about the like number one thing people ask themselves, whether they do it out loud or to themselves upon diagnosis is why me? why did this happen to me? So you want to take a stab at what, what does the why me moment mean for you? And how did you process your why me moment? Right. Well, uh, you know, Lisa, when, uh, and I do work um, and with support groups, and like you said, have engaged with a lot of patients, preparing them to tell their stories. And I think it's perfectly normal. I think it's natural, uh, whether you were diagnosed last year or last week, last month, or like myself decades ago, to have times when you think, oh, why me? Um, this is a condition that is going to last a lifetime. And I remember when I was first diagnosed, um, sitting in a cardiologist's office, and he started talking about uh, the limitations that I potentially could have on my life and what it might mean. Um, I remember thinking, I will never have a normal health checkup the rest of my life. I remember being in my 20s thinking, I will never go to a health clinic. I will never fill out an insurance form. I will never have um, a day when I feel that I am in good health, perfect health, or whatever you might conceive that to be. So I think it's very understandable. I think what's challenging about it is that we've had so many areas of our lives where we could say the same thing. Maybe we've lost a job. Uh, we've lost a loved one. We've had a sudden death in the family. Maybe there's been a divorce. Uh, maybe there's been financial challenges. So it's easy for us to think, 
why me? Why am I, why am I facing this difficulty? Why am I facing this hurdle? And particularly with HCM uh, as an inherited, generally inherited condition, um, I think it's understandable to feel almost even more like a victim, almost more like I didn't do anything to create this except be born, right? So, <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't take much to sort of flip the coin around and go, well, why not me, right? Exactly. I've had so many blessings in life that I would have never experienced in relationships and understanding about myself and access to healthcare and really my own perseverance if I had not had HCM. So, you know, I always try to remind myself, you know, when I think, why me? I think, well, why not me? And what is it in this experience that I think um, is uh, mine to bear, but mine that I can live through as best I can? I think you brought up some excellent points. Now, we, we have our own personal perspectives. We communicate with a lot of people with HCM in our own ways. I'm on the phone with a couple thousand a year. Um, you've got discussion groups where you're meeting with people every week or every couple of weeks um, to discuss mm -hmm. issues. Um, my personal why me was at 12. Um, and at 12, I had a very complete understanding of genetics in, in a moment in time. We think you have what runs in your family. Damn it. <laughs> like, okay, well, I'll deal with it. And that, that was pretty much it. But the why me also comes with anger, with fear, with a little guilt, like I'm going to be difficult as a family member. I'm going to be difficult as a, as a, as a boyfriend, girlfriend, significant other. I'm going to be difficult as uh, an employee because I might need more time off. Um, so there's, there's a little guilt there. And then there's the grief. And I talk about this one a lot when I'm giving talks on HCM and what the HCMA does. And I talk about how we provide support for grief, but it's not just grief in the death of a loved one, which sadly we, we face here um, pretty regularly. It's the grief over the loss of a part of yourself. It's the grief over the things that aren't going to happen or you won't be able to do, or you are grieving a level of freedom and security that you'll never get back. And to me, that, that grief part has taken a long time to process because I've seen a lot within my own family and within others. But then on the flip side, we have tools. We have things we can use. We can advocate for ourselves. We can use our voice. We can make shared decisions. We can do a lot of things. There are some things we can't do, won't be able to do, but there's a way more on the yes, you can list than the no, you can't list. And I think as you process the why me, everybody has to process the, their own way. But I think the why not me is really what I have found most helpful to get me through days. Um, Face it, why, why me? Well, I wouldn't know you, Gwen, if I didn't have HCM. 
I wouldn't know a lot of the people I know if I didn't have HCM and, and I would have missed out on a lot of amazing relationships, amazing opportunities to change the world for the better, if not for HCM. So it's this very weird love-hate relationship. I do have to say that there's a lot more not liking it than liking it, but I think you have to look at the why me. And you're here today in 2021 with HCM, a hell of a lot better than 1980 when we were both like newly diagnosed and saying, what now? So I think that's the part one. Um, I'm going to ask you to explain something in a minute, and then I'm going to pop off screen for a second because I left my phone over there and that's where the questions are going to come in from. Um, so I'm going to ask people if you want to post a question, um, I will be addressing them in just a few minutes. The second topic we wanted to dive into when I'm going to ask you to explain this a little bit more to our listeners is the stories we tell ourselves after diagnosis. And like, what does that mean? Like, are we lying to ourselves? Are we building a narrative that may have some truth and may not be completely real world? So, so what are the stories that we tell ourselves? Great. Uh, thanks for the question, Lisa. So just to kind of share with everybody who's listening, my interest in this area is uh, along with a lot of other uh, education and training I did. I also uh, am a certified life coach and specializing in personal development. And one of the things that's really stuck with me that has helped me in my own um, health condition is really the concept of the stories in our head or what the, you know, the little dialogue going on in our head all the time and how powerful that is, how very, very powerful it is. And so one of the things, a couple of things that maybe would help uh, listeners to is the first one's pretty simple. And that is when we talk about emotional wellness, it's impossible to have an emotion without a preceding thought. Now we're going to just pause there and let that sink in. So whether it's joy or envy, regret, fear, hatred, anger, passion, happiness, it doesn't matter. Emotions and understanding your emotions, if you just pause for a nanosecond and ask yourself, what thought am I having that is creating that emotion? Um, and it's our thoughts then that give us a little bit of wiggle room. And it's in our thoughts that we do tell ourselves stories. This shouldn't be happening. Why me? Um, this doctor is not going to get it right. They never understand me at the pharmacy. My insurance is going to let me down. We start the dialoguing oftentimes, not to say it isn't reasonable or not to say that it isn't understandable, but we begin this sort of anticipating or these stories about the circumstances and the experiences. And that really can lead to some difficult emotions is sort of like adding salt to a wound. Um, and so one of the things that's just kind of always helped me, I believe, is that when I'm really feeling blue, scared, anxious, is to kind of just pause, just I'm feeling blue, you know, I'm having a bad day, you know, stop trying to tell me I'm not, I'm having a bad day, sort of acknowledging that. And then I just try to for my own well-being. Well, why am I? What am I thinking about? What am I so afraid of that's creating this um, 
sick stomach, you know, this bad feeling, this anxiousness. And sometimes, you know, when you have those thoughts, you go, well, is that really true? Do they always mess up at the pharmacy? Maybe this time it's going to be different. And so, you know, it's just, it's just a little trick that I've kind of learned helps me at times not spiral down the drain in the sink and never catch myself, right? Is really just say, you know, is that really true? It's what I'm thinking. Is this really the beginning of the end? I mean, you know, Lisa, um, because we chat frequently, a couple of weeks ago I was in AFib. I was so I was so short of breath and and scared. And you think, you know, is this the, you know, is this the falling off point, right? Or am I ever going to get back to some decent amount of health? And uh, while I was in AFib, I couldn't drive. I couldn't even carry a basket in the grocery store. I had a, somebody had to help me, you know, I could get one of those little carts and all that. And the week before that, I was out sailing on the Chesapeake Bay. And so I'd gone from a relatively enjoyable time to one that I couldn't even make my bed. I was so short of breath. Um, but during those times, I kept thinking to myself, I need to keep my own perspective of this. I need to keep as best I can my perspective of what's happening right now and um, not make things worse by awfulizing it, um, making it um, seem any more catastrophic than it was. I was in AFib and I was going to go be cardiac converted and I felt fine the next day. Okay. So I need to address that. But anyway, I think the, I think the point I try to share in the discussion groups with uh, the patients that I work with and others that live with chronic illness is to pay a particular attention to this talk, that dialogue that's going on in your head because that can make a, a, a tough situation even tougher, for sure. Another part of that that we didn't talk about before, but I'll, I'll, I'll filter it in here because I think it fits. In HCM, if you're having a particularly bad day or a bad episode, your mind says, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And what is the body's response to trouble? Adrenaline. And if you drop adrenaline on top of an HCM heart that's having a hard day, it adds more adrenaline. <laughs> and it's the cat chasing its tail. So the stories you're telling yourself, oh my God, this is terrible. This is horrible. This is really bad. I, I maybe have to go to the emergency room. Maybe, maybe I'm going to have a, a cardiac arrest. Maybe something really bad is going to happen. And you tell yourself all these things. I want to remind you of one thing. You have survived every bad day up until now. And statistically speaking, you will survive this one too. And you need to stop the cat from chasing its tail because you're only adding to adrenaline. And that adrenaline is feeding you in the wrong way. So probably took me 15, maybe 15 years of living with HCM to figure this one out for myself. So if I got in my head, as I would call it, and I'm telling myself bad stories, I needed to stop, distract, stop the cycle and remind myself, I have survived every bad day up until now. And I'm going to likely survive this one too. Let's get on with it. And that's what helped me break my cycles of anxiety and getting in my head with my HCM symptoms. And I have heard many people over many years explain different triggers that they have 
different ways of getting out of it. Some people just have to sing a song. Some have to go in the garden. Some have to take a walk. You, you have to do something to break the cycle. Now, if you're physically feeling bad, you can't necessarily go out for the walk that maybe would help you clear your mind. You can't do something physical. So you're going to have to create some new emotional tricks. Think of something else. Go watch some silly videos of cats playing or whatever is going to make you happy. But don't watch any of those angry videos. There's a lot of angry videos out there right now. Don't watch, don't watch the Karen videos. They're just very- For the news. <laughs> for the news. It's very triggering. So I, I go with you know saving animals on video or cats and dogs, uh, spe specifically Shiba Inus, because that was my baby girl. So that's what makes me happy and distracts me. So I think it's really important to have those things that can distract. I mean, I've, I've been through some stress in my life, people. I, I don't talk a lot about the details, but today I posted uh, because it's Stroke Awareness Day. And little known fact that I had a stroke when I was 21 years old. And talk about emotional distress. I, I'm diagnosed at 12, flip that number to 21, and I'm having a stroke. I'm like, am I going to make it to 30? this is crazy. Like how many more things can break on me? I'm not even like 25 yet. So yeah, I had to learn a lot of skills early, how to cope, how to talk, how to, how to process and, and, and how to balance. And that's, I think what we really want to talk about today, because emotional wellness, when physical wellness isn't possible, is a challenge and you have to keep creating new methods for yourself. Yeah. And I want to jump in there, Lisa, because I, I certainly agree with you. And uh, the other thing I'd like to just add is um, I think about it as my emotional wellness bank. So even when everything's coasting along or you feel that it's a relatively good time or a good phase, anything you can do to strengthen your emotional uh, well-being, your mental health, your ability to remain focused, whether it's meditation, whether it's journaling, whether it's faith-based, whether it's crystals, whether it's burning sage in your house, pet rocks, I don't care what it is, anything you can do to put um, stability and mindfulness into your emotional bank account will serve you well in those bad days. I know I have got a fantasy about a garden scene going on in my head that I've been building every echo I've ever had in my entire life. So it started decades ago and it was a little small house and now it's a really big house. And every time I go in for an echo, it's kind of like a mental vacation. I pull that image up and I'm creating trees, birds, people playing, merry-go-rounds. I've now got an entire main street and I've build, been building this vision for decades. And right the minute I go into an echocardiogram, uh, I'm right there in that vision. So even, you know, just kind of think of it as putting money away for a rainy day. So if you had an appliance break or your car broke down, you won't be able to have something on reserve. And anything you can do along this journey is going to pay off for you uh, when you're in the hospital or have a test or sitting in the waiting room or having a stress test or anything else, it'll really pay off. And then there's time to prioritize what needs to be thought about at that moment because your bandwidth may only be a certain amount. And I'll pivot to September. 
2016, a chair in a hospital room with beige walls, paler than the ones behind me. And there's no other options left for me. I'm heading to transplant. And I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to, A, survive. (laughs) B, how's my family going to survive? C, how is the HCMA going to survive? And it all came down to if the first thing happened, the other ones would be fine. So rather than worrying about what was going to happen to the HCMA and what was going to happen to my family, it was, okay, I need right now to just focus on me and I need to do everything I can do to be as well as I can be so that I can get through this challenge and get to the other side. And there was a lot involved in that process. I literally didn't speak for five days. And if anybody knows me, me not talking for five days, that that was just not a good thing (laughs) because I had to process it out. But that's when I I just needed to shut down. And then all of the other stuff that was going on didn't matter anymore. It was just the, okay, what do I need to do to survive? What are the steps? What are the action steps? How can I do that? And well, it worked because I'm here today. Um, And it's been, it's been, it's been a process. So let's pivot this to feeling understood and the value of feeling understood to personal emotional wellness. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I mean, we essentially, for the most part, um, have what they would consider an invisible condition. I mean, we're not disabled, um, generally visual, visually, um, uh, we're walking around, generally going to work, participating in the community. Um, and I know in, in working with patients and I do this myself, I, for many, many years did not want to be perceived as uh, different. I wanted to fit in when, particularly when you're younger, you want to, you want to fit in, you want to feel normal, right? And uh, so it's kind of a catch-22, you know, I find that in all my efforts to appear on the surface as normal, that then when I'm really scared or I'm really having um, a down day, it's Mm -hmm. difficult to communicate that in a way that, first of all, I feel I can trust the people I'm talking to, okay, to just let me be the way I am, no judgment, don't need to fix it. It's like, you know, it's not catastrophic. It's just a bad, bad day. And that can actually, you know, understand that I'm still the same person. And, you know, I think sometimes we words fail us as HCM patients you know, because everybody either wants to help or they're scared or they want to get away or whatever. And they don't know necessarily how to react. And because of that, we're just like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then you go about, you know, not feeling great or you kind of muddle through it. But I do know that I hear a lot and I feel that myself. I remember one of years ago, one of my dearest, dearest girlfriends who was a nurse, knew about my heart condition, And I remember I was visiting her in Richmond, Virginia one time. And um, I had just come back from the Centers of Excellence. So I go uh, every three years. And um, 
I was talking about this trip and she said, you know, you always sound like something so horrible is going to happen to you. And really, you know, all you've had to do is take some pills every day. Okay. And her perception, you know, we would go shopping to the mall. Or we might take a vacation together or, you know, her, her observation of me being a lobbyist in Washington and speaking before Congress and doing a lot of other things that she really was so impressed by. But my internal emotional struggles, I could not communicate easily to her. And here it was my best friend who, despite what I'd said and despite the tears and despite setting in emergency rooms, scared out of my mind, her perception was that all I really had to do was take a couple of pills. And that taught me, uh, it really showed me, um, you know, just in that experience. So Lisa, as you know, I never married and did not have children. So it's different for those who have close relatives or spouses, but that really touched me, I know. I think that's a really important perspective to share because our friends who we assume are always going to have our back because they're our friends. They simply just don't understand what it's like to live with the threat in your heart at all times that is so unpredictable. Again, you know, I hate using the same words over and over again, but HCM is unpredictable. You could have so many good days in a row that like, thinking back to a bad day is, is a struggle because it's been maybe three, four months and things are good but then you have a bad day and you can't get off the couch or you're out at a restaurant and you're like, oh damn, I'm going to pass out. Or you're in a meeting and you're running the meeting for your management team. And you're like, I'm going to lay on the floor right now. And I'm going to put my feet up in a chair or the ambulance is going to come for me. So I think I'm going to choose to lay down and put my feet in the chair. And that happened to me on more than one occasion. Mm -hmm. And it's embarrassing. You know, you, uh, you're running a meeting and all of a sudden you're like, no, I'm laying on the floor because that's what you have to do. So whether it's a friend or a coworker who's trying to quote, understand you, we typically feel misunderstood even among, you know, going to a GP and say, here are the symptoms I have. I remember finding out that my ejection fraction had dropped to 45 and that Statistically speaking, it was going to be seven years to transplant or death. And I knew these numbers and I knew the facts. I chose to ignore them for a while because, hey, even I can go into denial, you know. Um, but I talked to my GP and I said, here, this is what's going to happen. So I'm really looking for a partner to get me ready for the fight. And she looked at me very confused. She goes, people really don't know that they're going to get a transplant that far in advance. I don't think that's the way it's going to play out. And I went, no, I, I, here's the data. Here's the articles. Here's my condition. Here's what's going on. I really do think that the data is probably right. And she didn't take me seriously. And she thought I was playing the drama card, which is what one of the nurses told me, you know, you got to stop being so dramatic about this. Alrighty then. <laughs> so I found a new GP <laughs> and I left that office. And six and a half years from my awareness that my ejection fraction had dropped is when I found myself in the hospital facing a transplant imminently in, within six months. So I, I, I beat the clock in a way 
by a couple months. Um, I didn't make the seven years and I got my heart in time. So, you know, when you know something, you know something because the data is there. Um, somebody posted a question about what does it feel like after myectomy? Well, this is kind of the same thing. Like we know if you actually need a myectomy and you have the symptoms that will respond to a myectomy, which if you'd like to call the office, we're happy to talk about on an individual basis. But after surgery, you can feel really, really well. But getting there is challenging. Doing the actual surgery is challenging. There's emotional consequences to doing this that you can get over. And we're here to help you through that. But it's hard. And many of your friends are going to come back to you and go, well, you had the surgery. You're all better now. Not true. You still have HCM. And you can still have negative consequences of HCM. So we really need peer support. And you want to talk a little bit about the value of peer support for our community? Absolutely. Um, you know, nobody really wants to feel they're alone. The isolation of this condition. So, you know, it's hard enough when your spouse, children, coworkers uh, don't really understand you or you feel they don't or you feel alienated from you. But, you know, there can be these embarrassing situations. And, you know, other HCM patients do understand, you know, even if they've never met you or you're a different age or, you know, different race or were diagnosed last week and you were diagnosed months ago. So we're all, you know, the cliche, we're all in this together, but everyone's experience is shining a light for somebody who's right behind them. Whether you have had an experience with the medication, you've had an experience being evaluated or had a myectomy or an ICD or a lead go bad or a doctor who didn't understand you or you had a change or finding a center of section, you know, support their, this community is so generous with their information and they have so much to offer. None of us, none of us, if possible, wants another person to struggle if we can help them prevent it. So whatever we might know uh, in good faith that we can share is so important either through the discussion groups or through calling the HCMA office on the Facebook live group, these podcasts, interactions, et cetera, the mentoring programs. So I really encourage everyone to take uh, advantage of that. Um, we know that sharing our stories, the little bits, uh, the hard stuff, the good stuff, really helps um, to feel you're being heard, that somebody really heard your story and maybe just for a few minutes walk in your shoes. And I think that that is beneficial. I see it in the discussion groups. It's almost like, you know, someone will say, well, I hate to talk about this, but you know, it's okay, talk about it. And then you can just almost sort of see their shoulders drop and the weight get off of them that somebody took time to just hear what it was like for them uh, to struggle with their spouse and intimacy is very, very difficult to talk about men and women, the impact on their, uh, their intimacy and their partners. So anyway, um, don't, you know, don't, it, don't ever feel like that there isn't the opportunity to be heard and to have a moment of what we call really just holding a place for you to feel vulnerable, 
And it's okay. I try to remind myself that every patient I meet is way, way more interesting than whatever HCMA is to HCM has done to them. I mean, that's like, that's why we're here. But then you start to get to know people and their hobbies and the lives they've had and the things they do. And people are really, I would say people are more person than patient. You know, there's so much more that goes into how you have shown up in this world. And that's the interesting part. None of us should be defined by this condition. I don't care how many pills we take or how long we are in the hospital. It is one aspect of our lives, but it's not all of who we are. And I think that uh, reaching out to other people, um, small groups, big groups, when you feel like it is really, I think you're going to find it just very rewarding and helpful. And I'll add on to that. Um, I agree with everything that you said, but there's another way that we cope. And you and I have used this one masterfully most of the time, and that's advocacy. Mm. It's Sharing with each other is great. Trying to stop the bad from happening to somebody else is, is personally, you know, very rewarding. You know, I, I right over my shoulder, like that picture right up there. That's my sister, Lori. She's literally over my shoulder. And when I lost her, um, I was angry. I was back to where we started this conversation. I was angry. I lost my best friend, my sister. She's gone. Um, and I wanted to find other people who would understand what that felt like. And that's kind of where the HCMA started was really just kind of as a, like a support group thing that kind of grew a little bit bigger than I had anticipated, but that's a good thing. But you start with the one-on-ones and then you grow it to the global advocacy and what, how can we change the system? How can we stop masses of other people having these same problems? How do we change the world so it's easier for people like us? And you know what? It doesn't have to be just HCM. There are other chronic illnesses that people have that are invisible disabilities. And we need to make sure that people have access to good healthcare, that healthcare is available, that we know how to use it and that the systems are set up so that we can succeed, not set us up for failure. And getting involved in those bigger issues, mm-hmm. I think emotionally makes me feel better. I feel like I'm, I'm taking a little bit of control away from HCM and taking it back for myself and my family. So what do you think? I think we also, I think we also, Lisa, want to make sure that any and everybody, I mean, we have a condition that even some of the country world's best doctors don't fully understand or know about. Um, So, you know, one gift that we can give all of us as patients, as well as the doctors and nurses and health professions in general, is to do our part to make sure that they understand the day-to-day life of what it's like to live with HCM, the impact of certain drugs, the impact of what it's like finding a centers of excellence, how easy is it to take time off from work, what it's like when you go on disability, because these are the real world experiences that patients like us live with and those who will be diagnosed and come behind us. There's no other way. I mean, they can read books, they can study about it, but hearing personal stories and seeing people and seeing how it interplays with their decision to have children, what kind of jobs they have. Do they want to get genetic testing? Do they need somebody to care for them at home? Do they go on disability? Can they stand their spouse anymore? Are they going to be able to have uh, successful sexual relationships? 
Are they going to be able to go out and go on vacation? Can they go out of the country? All of these are real. They're not embarrassing moments. They're not out of the ordinary. Your experience really um, is unique to you. And so if you have, you know, not everybody likes to sort of, you know, get out there and talk about themselves and that's okay. But there's lots of ways that uh, we can share our stories and um, it's our responsibility to do that. That's the way they're really going to understand beyond doctors and nurses are going to understand beyond just reading it in a book. Um, and uh, we have a condition. We all know we get misdiagnosed every time we turn around. We all know that we're in the back of the ambulance. We're scared out of our minds because the EMT has probably never heard of it or they heard it by a different name or they saw two sentences in a textbook. So any way that we can get involved in an advocacy group locally or on a national level or helping with medical students or telling your story to the media is really, really going to be helpful. It's, it's even if you don't know the ripple effect that it has, it, somebody's going to read it and hear it and their life is going to change. Hopefully they're better or they're going to remember something that's going to help another patient. That is why we have our Share Your Story program. And as of right now, we have about 200 volunteers who are willing to share their story. If you want to be one of them, just go to the website, look at the volunteer opportunities, and you can check off that, hey, I'll, I'll do that. Um, just in the past two weeks, we had two different companies approach us who were looking for patients to participate in a, um, a survey-based understanding of HCM. So if you're in our Share Your Story network, you're going to get that offer. And we had one group that wanted 35 people and another one that wants 20 people. And you'll have a chance to share your story with industry to help guide discovery. Or maybe we'll have an opportunity with a news outlet and we'll, we'll help share your story there. So we have to get more stories out than Dwayne and mine and the few people that have already helped us do that. So you're going to be seeing a lot more opportunities to do that in the coming days. And it's so important to share your story, not only for advocacy, but for medical education. So this new thing that we've just launched or that will technically launch on Monday, which is HCM Academy, um, very exciting. Five of our patients actually were videotaped for two hour segments and they were broken down into educational portions of the HCM Academy. So it's not just a slide presentation where patients will say things like this. No, we have five case studies with five patients who tell their story and then it's integrated into the education model. And they're diverse individuals from people in their early 20s to almost 80. Men, women, um, black, white, there's every, we, in five stories, we could only get so many demographics, <laughs> but we, we covered the spectrum with obstructed transplants, myectomies, devices. It's all in five stories. Um, it's beautifully crafted and I can't wait to share it with you all. If you'd like your healthcare professionals to take HCM Academy, go right to the HCMA website, look at programs, look for HCM Academy, and you can give us the name of your physician. Or if you are a physician and you want to take HCM Academy, which is a free CME course, you can refer yourself in. And once the program starts to populate, you can join us. So that's just another way to, I know that's not emotional wellness, but I'm sure you're going to emotionally feel better if you can go to a doctor and they actually understand you. 
So we all have to help build that network. Definitely do. Gwen, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I think my final thought or the takeaway for all of us is um, that when you think about your emotional or mental well-being, uh, it's going to go hand in hand um, throughout your life. Uh, and it's not easy. And I don't think that um, anything about this condition is uh, comes without a lot of fear and anxiety at times. And so hopefully the takeaway is that beyond what's happening to your heart and all the things that the doctors can do for us and all the advances in technology and the medications and all the things that we need to keep current on, you know, it's our responsibility to make sure to the best of our ability that we can put, put some investment into our emotional well-being bank and that we do recognize that we have a responsibility to take care of our mental health. That may be being on antidepressants, it, which is perfectly fine, going to therapy, seeing a life coach, speaking to a minister, finding somebody in a support group that you can cry with or you can help listen, um, that you really recognize that, that uh, maintaining um, that peace and calm is going to serve you very well during some challenging times. And, and just give some thought as to what you need to, uh, to do that in the best way possible. I'll add that getting good rest physically and emotionally um, is really important. I have recently taken up more meditation and it takes a while to stop the monkey brain and stop yourself from thinking for a little bit. But if you do some deep breathing and some basic meditation, it, it, it's not like this whole like yogi thing where, you know, you got to sit for hours and just, you know, just be one with the earth. It's five minutes of time to just close your eyes and stay centered and just be calm. That is incredibly helpful. But the work of mental health therapists, talk therapy, just talking it out, saying it out loud, saying the things you're afraid of out loud, to me, makes them not so scary anymore. I said it out loud. Look, the world didn't break. I'm okay. We got this. And when you can say it out loud to people who also understand, they see they're not alone in those same feelings and, and thoughts. Um, I'm going to double back on something, Gwen, because you brought it up twice and I, I want to bring it up again. Um, and that is intimacy. Okay. We need connection with other human beings, regardless of your sexuality, you need intimacy and you need connection with other human beings. And sometimes in HCM, this can become a bit problematic, mostly because of fear. Either your partner is afraid they're going to hurt you or you're afraid that something's going to go wrong at the wrong moment and it's going to be awkward. I've spoken to thousands of patients with HCM. It's okay to talk about sex. It's a normal part of life. Um, and we know that certain medications can sometimes impede that intimacy moment. Sometimes beta blockers are not your friend um, and they may block the libido. So you need to recognize this. You need to talk to your partner if you feel like, I, I really like you and I really want to do things, but I just don't feel like it. 
and then discuss that with your doctor because there might be other choices of medications that you can switch to that don't have those side effects. And, you know, I have a very funny HCM story <laughs> related to um, a gentleman who was a dear friend. He's, he's passed a long time ago now, but he was a dear friend and he had an implantable defibrillator. And um, we'll just, I'm going to say this in his PG 13 as I can. So he has the defibrillator. He's with a girlfriend and um, the ICD went off and she felt it. And it was a very odd moment for both of them because nobody knew that if his device went off, she was going to feel it in a very different place. And it happened. They ended up laughing about it for a very long time. And there were some jokes about who was better because who made whose device go off. Um, <laughs> and at a certain point, humor has to be your friend here. Don't not have sex because your ICD might go off. You know, maybe you'll be the next one to have a great joke about it. But you need to discuss these things with your partners. You, you have to open that conversation, even though they're not always the most comfortable conversations. And it is part of emotional wellness and HCM. It is part of your life. You can't parse out your life into this is work and this is friends and this is relationships and this is my sex life. And this is, you're all one and it's all interconnected. You have to give each one space. And we're here to help you find coping mechanisms. We're here with discussion groups and center of excellence programming so you can get the best quality of care possible. And I think if you put it all together and you use all of the resources that are out in the world and available to you, life with, with HCM can be quite manageable and quite pleasurable. I mean, in every way, you can have a wonderful life with HCM. Just make sure you stay educated and, and, and engaged. I'm going to ask one last time if anybody has any questions. Ross, I like your comment. I wish we had a loan bank for each good day versus bad day. And you could bank your good days and take them on a bad day. They haven't figured that one out yet. But when they do, we'll let you be the first one to use it. Um, okay, we have another comment coming in. Uh, thanks for sharing. Um, lived with this in fear. Um, I felt like I might not live as long since I was told that HCM, but hearing your stories really changed my mind. Well, good. Um, you're, you're, we're all kind of stuck here for a while. Let's just go back to the summit for a quick second and look at the data presented about HCM care in high volume care centers. So if you're a human being and you live in the United States of America, every year you have a 0.8% chance of death, accident, violence, cancer, HCM related death, it's 0.8 in the general population. If you are being cared for in an HCMA recognized center of excellence program with high volume, your likelihood of death every year is 0.5%. You actually improve your numbers because if you need a defibrillator, you're going to get one. If you need a myectomy, you're going to get one. If you need to be medicated, you're going to get the right medication. If you need a heart transplant, you're going to get one. So if you can look at all of the things that are in the toolbox and you use what needs to be used, we don't do everything to everybody because, well, that just doesn't make sense. You know what you're going to need. If you employ the toolbox and you work with a high volume center, your likelihood of survival is about equal to or better than other individuals without HCM. 
that's facts. You want to talk emotion? We can talk emotion. You want to talk facts? We can talk facts. Both of them are in your favor. Mm-hmm. And you know, Lisa, I kind of want to just add to that as well, particularly for those listening who maybe have more recently diagnosed. Uh, you do have uh, the advantages of a lot of innovation, centers of excellence, knowledge, new drugs, new products coming on the market. Um, so the, the horse is out of the barn, so to speak. Uh, it's only going to get better. And there will be a time when you don't need to talk about HCM, you know, that you will feel more confident. You'll understand your triggers for having a bed day. Maybe it's the diet, the change in medication, drink too much alcohol, too much wine, party too much, dance too much, didn't get enough sleep. You'll understand. And so for, if you feel that it's all consuming, it can be when you're first diagnosed or when you're going through a difficult time, but also know that this level of intensity or, or that it's on your mind all the time, or it's just overtaking your every thought will lessen as you become more familiar with, um, with, you know, what you're capable of doing, who the good doctors are and what to do uh, when you possibly aren't feeling well. I'm going to wrap up. Thank you. That was great. I'm going to wrap up with one final thought. Um, We are recruiting for some committees. One of the committees we're recruiting for is health equity. And I want to put a shout out to people who have different skin colors than my own. And I want to let you all know that HCM is everybody's problem. It's not one ethnicity. It's, we just happen to be two women, two white women sitting here talking to you about it today. There is HCM in the black community, in the African community, in the Caribbean community, in the Asian community, in the Hispanic and Latina community. It's everywhere. And there are cultural differences on how we deal with disease. There are cultural differences on how we respond to stress and what mechanisms we're willing to use to help us cope with that. I wanna just put this out there to say the HCMA is there for all of you, everybody. We represent your hearts, regardless of what they're encapsulated in. (laughs) We are the same in that sense. And I want everybody to feel welcome to come to us to have these conversations. And as we build up our health equity committee, we will have more programming specific to the population, starting with a webinar that we are going to host in December about the HCM Black experience. So stay tuned for that one. Um, We want you to hear from members of the Black community on how they manage and cope and what they want you to know about HCM. And we will be doing these with other groups of individuals from different demographics. Um, But we're here for all of you. This is not just a Caucasian community. We are all people. We are literally in every nation where there are human beings, you will find HCM and in every demographic. So please, we're all in this together. Um, So that was my final note. Um, I thank you for joining us today on Tales from the Heart. Gwen, thank you so much for providing your insight and your guidance and um, for your friendship over the years. It's you know invaluable to me. And I think the community gets an idea of why they should sign up for one of your discussion groups and join you to have some of these deep conversations. And um, I guess we're just about wrapped up here then. Any final thoughts? No, thank you, Lisa. Um, it's been a pleasure um, to work with you.
And I enjoyed the discussion. Hopefully it was helpful. I think it will be for many to, for a long time to come. So happy Halloween weekend, everybody, and which we'll tell you when this was recorded, if you're listening to it some other time. I hope you all have a safe and happy uh, holiday with your friends. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4HCM Warriors. That's the number 4HCM Warriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4HCM.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypotrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypotrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4HCM.org or visit us online at our website 4HCM.org and send us an email from there. The Hypotrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program.